Father, once again, we ask that you would help us, help us behold wonderful things from your word and to find refreshment and encouragement in and through Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, if, you're th- if you were here last week and you're thinking, that was the exact same introduction you used last week, you're close, but no price. Last week, I essentially opened with the exact same thing, but I wasn't quoting Jesus. I was quoting Peter, the apostle of Jesus, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, talking about Jesus. Essentially, they're saying the same thing. And essentially, all Christians have been saying the same thing ever since there have been Christians. God has a son. God provides salvation through his son. And the way that God has chosen to love the world, John 3.16, is by sending his son so that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's the Christian gospel that if you trust in the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, if you trust in him for your forgiveness, for your acceptance before God, you will be saved. You will be saved from God. You'll be saved from just condemnation. You'll be saved from wrath. You'll be saved from hell. You'll be saved not just on the negative, you'll be saved positively unto newness of life. You'll be part of God's family. You'll have eternal life. All of these good things that come. This is just Christian ABCs, one, two, threes. And yet it's controversial. In fact, many times people have heard Peter, other apostles, other Christians, or Jesus saying things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or the Apostle Paul, for that matter. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Many, many, many people have said in response, that is arrogant. Here's my first question for you this morning. Is it arrogant? Is it arrogant to say that there is one way to have your sins forgiven, to say that there's one way to be reconciled with God. There's one way to have eternal life by conscious faith in Jesus. Is that arrogant? A lot of people have said so. It got Jesus in so much trouble. Other things did too. But he was opposed and he was crucified. It will get the apostles in so much trouble and the early Christians surrounding them that that many of them will become martyrs because they're preaching good news. Many people are responding positively, but others are saying that couldn't be more arrogant to say that there aren't many paths that lead to heaven, that there aren't many true religions. That's arrogant. My question for you again is, is it arrogant? I think the answer to the question is, yes, If it's not true. Yes, that would be the height of arrogance. But remember Jesus. Remember Jesus said that kind of thing. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Bible says, like in 1 Timothy 3.16, that through his resurrection, he has been vindicated. An important big word. He was proven to be right. He was proven to be the right one, yes, but also all the things he said were proven to be right. So arrogance, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, I think we'd have to say, yeah. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was vindicated. He was justified. His his claims were shown to be true and not empty claims. And so now let's have another question. What would then be the height of arrogance if Jesus made such a claim and was vindicated in his claims? What would be the height of arrogance is for somebody like me to stand up and say, there are many paths that lead to God. Or for someone to say, you don't have to have conscious faith in Jesus to go to heaven. 
That would be the height of arrogance. I'm bringing it up today because this is such a controversial thing. And you're going to face it. You are facing it. You have faced it if you're a Christian. The apostles we're going to see are facing it. And they're in major hot water because of it. Jesus obviously faced it. Jesus is different from the apostles and we're different from the apostles, but there is, uh, there is continuity. There is similarity. Jesus did say, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The apostles did say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we find ourselves in this place where we need to really think long and hard and carefully about this matter of Jesus being the Savior and everyone's need to believe in Him for eternal life. And here's what we're going to do today. What we're going to do as we look at the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, as we look at that chapter, we're going to be able to watch something amazing and encouraging. We are going to watch and observe the early church deal with the conflict how how do they deal with the conflict how do they how do they keep uh, keep their footing how, how do they keep their minds on straight spiritually how do they keep from compromising because if there's anything that maybe sometimes i would like to compromise over it would be over that if there's anything they might be tempted to compromise over because it's going to keep their lives it's going to keep them out of jail it's going to keep their jobs it's going to keep their reputations they might just want to say, well, you know, Jesus is a way. But then it wouldn't be true anymore. Then it wouldn't be Christian anymore. So what I hope happens today is we learn from the early church how, at least a, at least somewhat of a sense, what, what did they do? How, how did they stay so bold? How, how did they not compromise so the gospel could be true as it were true, but then truly handed down even to us the once and for all delivered to the saints faith? I think we're going to be encouraged today. I've been encouraged already. Let's learn. Oh, I'm going to give you a hint too, ahead of time. Because you might be wondering. I want you to be wondering. What's the secret? It's not really a secret. But what kept them so bold? I think there's different, there are different true answers. But one thing that keeps them so bold is something else that's controversial. I'll give you a hint. I'm not going to give it away now because I want you to hang in there to the very end. There's a Christian doctrine that it's at the forefront of their minds and hearts. It starts with a P. Some Christians don't even know it's in the Bible. Some Christians don't ever want to say it. They're going to say it. There's a reality that starts with a P that keeps them bold. Or you could use a synonym that starts with an S keeps them bold. Do you know what it is? We're going to get to it. Okay. We're going to get to it. At least one person told me last hour, they said, I got the answer right. So I hope lots of you get the answer right. Okay. We're going to review just a little bit in Acts chapter 4. I'll go as fast as I possibly can so we can get to the P word um, and the S word and see their boldness. But by way of review, let's go ahead and jump into verse 1. And as they, the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because, they, notice, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And I give you permission to be very annoyed at them. <laughs> Christians are annoyed at their annoyance. If anything, don't be annoyed at that. Be happy about that. Verse 3 says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So there's the positive. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that the very same message, as the Apostle Paul will later say, that's foolishness, and to be opposed by some people, the very same message some other people hear and they say, that's wisdom from God. They say, that's the power of God unto salvation. Well, let's keep going. Here we go, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, 
So same kind of people as were there with Jesus uh, when he was tried and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? How is it that this man who for about 40 years was not able to walk and now he walks? But notice, I'll point out to you, they're not denying that it happened. They're just saying, how did it happen? Then verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the idea is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see in just a little while that's associated with boldness. When you're facing intimidation or fear, controlled by the Holy Spirit helps you to do the right thing, given who Peter had been in the past, cowardly in front of some of these same people. We see a huge shift because he's controlled by the Spirit. Now he's bold, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed, how weird is that, done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed or delivered literally, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that's how it's happened. Then he goes on to say, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, Remember, there's that contrast. It'll keep coming up even later in our passage. It's a theme. It's a reoccurring theme in Peter's gospel preaching. You did the wrong thing. You're guilty of sin. You need Jesus because we know he's the right one because God raised him from the dead. Who's on the right side or the wrong side of history anyway? You versus God. Pretty bad look when they're the ones who claim to represent God. But they are false in their claims. It says, by Him, by the crucified, resurrected one, by Him, the one who God vindicated by raising Him from the dead, to borrow from Paul, this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus, this one, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22, Jesus referenced it also in relationship to himself, remember? And ever so quickly, remember, if you get the cornerstone wrong, then you get the whole building wrong. And here he's addressing the official leaders of Israel. And they are in the business of building up the people of God. Well, they're being exposed by Peter of being shams. Because if you reject the key to the whole building, then you're going to have a faulty whole building. So what they are building, even though they have the right book and a lot of the right names and right vocabulary and claim the right lineage, Peter is exposing them as fraudulent. Okay, I mean, it's a a major one-two punch to say you rejected the most fundamental basic thing. So what the the people of God that you're building here... um, aren't the people of God. Pretty pretty hardcore what he's saying here. And then verse 12, which is where we started all of this. I think it's kind of interesting. Oftentimes, so many of us memorize Bible verses out of context. I'm thankful to memorize Bible verses any old time. Um, but maybe it even carries more weight, verse 12, that I've known for so long in my Christian life. Well, that it, 12 makes a lot more sense when you read it in, verse, in light of verse 11. And there is salvation in no one else. Think about it. He's the cornerstone. Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, notice, must, must be saved, ultimately healed, ultimately resurrected, ultimately delivered. So this is why Christians then, this is why Christ said about himself, this is why Christians now say, that conscious faith in Jesus and his person and work is required for salvation. Salvation from the bad, condemnation. Salvation unto the good, eternal life, restoration, reconciliation. It's always been controversial. It is controversial today. It always will be controversial until the Lord returns. But make no mistake about it, even though religious leaders who say they're Christians at times have said, you know what, many roads lead to God. It's the height of arrogance. 
Because in no uncertain terms, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's, it's why that we have the Great Commission. The one who has all authority, Matthew 28, 18, commissioned and said, go and make disciples for me, in effect, of all nations. They all need me. There's only one way. John 3, 16 even indicates this. this. So we have to keep this in mind. We have to keep this in mind. People need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, in order to be delivered, in order to have eternal life. One major group that calls itself Christian says, well, here's how it's going to work. Essentially, most everybody, as long as you're a good person, (laughs) as long as you live up to the light within you, we're just making this stuff up. So A for creativity, but... um, F for faithfulness to Christianity. As long as you live up to the light within you, then eventually you'll get to heaven one day and you'll find out that you're there because Jesus is your Savior and Mary prayed for you. Well, again, pretty creative. The height of arrogance. And I realize by saying that I'm being controversial and I might face negative consequences. If you agree or say anything similar, you might be controversial and you might face consequences. Guess what? The early church is saying this sort of thing might not be apples to apples, but it is what they're saying and it is controversial and it will lead to some good things happening because thousands of people are believing. And if you will, the thousands of people are saying to them, don't doctor up the message because you're actually going to mess up the message. But some people aren't going to like the message. It's going to cost Peter his life eventually. But I'm thankful for Holy Spirit boldness and doctrinal convictions. Some of them even start with a P. We're going to get to it. That caused them to be bold and not invent a new religion in order to be more popular. Because the popularity we're ultimately seeking, as we will see, is popularity before God and other true Christians, if you will. So must, must, Peter says. I'm thankful that Peter goes for it because all he's doing is echoing his Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe just one more thing about this to stir it up a little bit in your mind. The day I say something that sounds radically different from what Peter says there, which is radically different from what Jesus says, which is radically different from what Paul says, you need to say, Pat, A for creativity, Thank you for starting a new religion, but you're not a Christian pastor anymore. And you get an F. And you are the most arrogant person. Pretty interesting to think this stuff through. You know, as Christians, as a Christian, I put all my eggs in the same basket. I'm going for the guy who was raised from the dead. God's stamp of approval. I'm pleased, justified, vindicated. I'm all in. Remember when Jesus said other controversial things? In John chapter 6, and a lot of his followers, disciples, left. What did Jesus do? He doctored up the message. No, because that would be contrary to reality. What he did was ask everyone else, would you like to go too? (laughs) Amazing. And what did they say? Where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. All of our eggs are in your basket. Okay, I hope that stirred you up a little bit and prepared you a little bit. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, wonder where that comes from, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, that, that's good. Notice, notice the, the continuation, the continuity, uh, that, that, that speaks of the authenticity, right? That they're not just these guys out of left field. Oh, you know what? They're with Jesus. It's no wonder they sound like him. They, they were the ones who were with him. This speaks to legitimacy. It speaks to authenticity. Dr. Luke is underscoring such things. Verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, beside the them who were with Jesus, They had nothing to say in opposition, which also speaks to authenticity. Oh, those are the guys who were with Jesus. And not only that, the guy that they supposedly healed is standing there with them, which also speaks to authenticity. 
It most certainly does. This is really good to see, and it's really good to have on the record. As Luke, remember, is writing, according to Luke 1, to someone so that he can have certainty about the legitimacy of being a Christian. This is still review. Let's go on. I'm trying to keep it interesting. It's easy to make the Bible boring. It's letting it go. Okay, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign, oh, this also speaks of authenticity and legitimacy, a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all, oh, there it is again, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And if you're thinking that fake religion is gross right about now, I think you would be right. Just ask them to be in utter denial of reality is what they're ordered to do. We just want you to be committed to a blind contra-evidence religion. Peter's going to talk about seeing, hearing. How how can we not speak? We've seen, we've heard. But the religious leaders, they've also seen and heard. And they're saying, don't talk about Jesus. Who, Who are the crazy ones? You know, if Peter were in an 80s punk band, he'd be saying, I'm not crazy. Institution, you're the one that's crazy. Institution, you're driving me crazy. Now you know why I'm in therapy. (laughs) Child of the 80s, punk bands included. Now, people said, why'd you drive into the parking lot so fast today? It's because I was listening to that song. But anyway, but it actually works as an illustration. It's not just Pat's crazy, convoluted mind. Oftentimes, 80s punk bands were speaking against the man. Those in authority questioning their wisdom, their rationality. Here we have the spiritual edition of the man. And the apostles on good authority are questioning their authority. Who's crazy here? It's not the apostles. It's not the apostles. I'm not crazy. You're the one that's crazy. You're driving me... Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Verse 19. (laughs) Pray for my family, especially. Okay. All right, here we go. Verse. I had the weirdest dreams last night, too. Maybe that's why I came up with these things. It was like a combination between Escape from New York and Hunger Games. And it was all happening in Omaha. It's like, hide the sharp, sharp objects. There were sharp objects involved. It was horrible. Anyway, Molly did tell me this morning during singing, yeah, you, you were, you were audible in your dreams too, so. <sighs> Come Lord Jesus, we say. Alright. Now let's get back to the text. We're almost to the new part. Verse 19 says, but Peter and John answered them. Think Holy Spirit boldness, right? They answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God. Notice the contrast. He, he loves that contrast because it's so profound. You must judge. Verse 20 says, I love verse 20. I hope you do too. For we cannot but speak of what we have, notice, seen and heard. We're not the crazy ones. We've seen it and heard it. And they have too. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Authenticity, 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 surrounded by authenticity. But as I mentioned last week, when you have self-interest groups involved and their self-interests are threatened, oftentimes it's la, 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 la. Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. Dr. Luke wants his readers to understand 
that the reason for first century rejection of Jesus was not due to lack of facts. It was not due to lack of evidence. It was not due to lack of objectivity. New stuff. Here we go. New section. Verse 23. Now we're getting closer to the P word that gives them such boldness. They don't cave in. They don't compromise. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So this is the the great debriefing. Some of the, some of the most memorable times in my life have been debriefings. You've had to be involved in a meeting or something's happened and maybe it's been good or maybe it's been bad. And then you, afterward, you've got to get together with your friends. You've got to get together with your family and you've got to do the the debriefing. Tell me what happened. Tell me how this went and, and, and tell me about this engagement. Tell me about this interaction. Well, this would have been an amazing debriefing. They told us that we were not allowed by their law to tell people how to be forgiven of their sins. The, the 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 religious leaders told us that we have to deny the resurrection, which we ourselves have seen with our ears, and we've heard explained by Jesus the meaning of it with our ears, and we've seen it with our eyes. Excuse me. I do like to talk about ear witness testimony, so there's an overlap because it's eyewitness and ear witness. Stop telling people good news. Stop telling people facts. They mandated that we, in effect, be cover up people, at least by our lack of speech. So now what? What are they going to do? Well, now they're going to pray. And this praying reveals some really important things that help us to understand where their conviction comes from. The P word I was looking for is not prayer, but we could add that to the list. The, the, the answer is multifaceted. How do they stay bold? How do they stay committed to this? I, I would suggest to you it's The same reason why we actually should stay bold and committed. And when we look at their prayer, we see some things that tell us what they believe that help us to understand why they didn't compromise or cave in. In verse 24, we read, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, So here's the prayer, Sovereign Lord, That right there helps us a lot. But we should just keep reading for a moment. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So that right there is the answer I was looking for. But we're going to see it expressed in a different way. But if we want to have it be the S word. Sovereign Lord. What keeps them bold? One of the things that keeps them bold and not compromising is. They acknowledge that while these other lesser sovereigns lowercase s, these authorities, these rulers who tell them they can't do certain things, they must do other certain things. And so, you know, or else, and it's going to be an or else. No, what do they do? It shows up in their prayer. You know what? We, You know who's really sovereign? You know who's ultimately sovereign? You know who ultimately calls the shots? You know who, whose favor we're ultimately seeking after? It's not these theological swindlers. It's the sovereign of sovereigns, the sovereign Lord. Some Christians think the sovereignty of God is too controversial to even talk about. They don't even believe it. Well, it's no wonder we compromise on things like the exclusivity of preaching Christ. These guys don't, and at least in part, one reason they don't is they keep their their perspective. These sovereigns are saying, stop. But the sovereign who's sovereign over heaven and earth and all creation is the one who mandated that we do this. We know he did because we heard from his very own son. I love it. I love it. You see the practicality. And I think some things are true even if they're not practical. But here we see the practicality of their theology, their big God theology, if you will. Somebody else else is in charge here. His name is God, the sovereign, and it's going to cause us to be emboldened. And it's going to cause us to be steadfast because our theology is intact. It's showing up in the way they pray. I would also like to have you connect a couple couple of um, realities here. Here, the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. Think Acts 4.12. No other name given among men under heaven, by which we must be saved. 
Similar kind of talk. Similar kind of talk. The God who's sovereign over all tells us to tell everybody else there's only one way. Who does he think he is? God or something? Yeah. The God who's sovereign over all has given good news, but good news on his terms through his unique son. How can we help overcome being intimidated by having the right theological perspective? And it comes back to, all right, God is in charge. He's the one that's commissioned us. Remember, Jesus has all authority. He's sovereign. Keeps our bearings straight. One key to us, even today, let's draw from this, not capitulating, compromising, caving in under pressure that's real, is to remember who God is. As one person said to me, I like the sovereignty of God. Well, I'll never forget hearing it like that. I think they eventually caught on that it's pronounced sovereignty, but sovereignty of God. The kingship. We're going we're gonna to be faithful to the message because ultimately we respect God more than we do any other sovereign. Okay, let's keep moving. He says in the prayer, and we're not done seeing, seeing some of these things, who through the mouth of your father, David. So they're, they're praying and they're acknowledging, okay, God, um, we know that you, through David, uh, said something really important, and we're going to get to it, but I, I can't help but interrupt. I know it's rude to interrupt people's prayer. Who through the mouth of our father, David, something's happening here. The Jewish religious leaders, they would claim David. But now the apostles, they're claiming David. Who has the right to claim David as their father? Even in the prayer, I would suggest to you that the apostles are claiming to have David as their father. These guys clearly don't because I know we're in the deep end of the pool now. I'm asking you to keep a lot of things straight. David affirmed a greater David who would be resurrected from the dead. Peter preached about him in Acts chapter 2. When he quotes in Acts chapter 2 verse 34, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, who, who has the right to say David's our father? It's actually the apostles, not the shenanigan Jewish religious leaders who've lost their way. They've taken their finger off the text of scripture. Who actually can claim David as their father? It's actually those who believe in Jesus because David believed in redemption through a greater one who would come in his line. Let's keep going, but we'll stop rudely again. Your servant who through the mouth of our father, your servant, he's going to keep talking about servant. And so I just have to give you the heads up now. Servant theme is big. Servant theme is big in the Old Testament. Israel is considered God's servant. They're to point people to the one true and living God. The, the, the major servant theme in Isaiah, Israel is the servant of God. David here is referred to a, as a servant. We're going to see that Jesus is the ultimate servant. He's the faithful servant. David is faithful in a lot of ways, in anticipation of the ultimate one. But he's, faith, he's not faithful in other ways. He's, he's the most faithful among all the unfaithful. Okay? But there's that, that, that good servant theme. Jesus is the ultimate servant. Peter's going to talk that way, or the believer's going to talk that way. And then, how about this? He's going to refer to all believers who are true believers in the ultimate servant as servants. It's good. It's really good. But he's poking his finger in the eyes, well, they are in their prayer even, of the Jewish religious leaders. They've shown themselves to not be the servant. They've shown themselves to not be faithful to David, the servant, who anticipated Jesus, the servant. And the good thing is, if you believe in Jesus, you're referred to as servants. And we mean that in a good sense. The honor of serving the one true and living God on behalf of his fame and glory and on behalf of the good of his people. Are we ever going to get through this prayer? I don't know. But can you imagine being at a prayer meeting and having somebody like me there? Oh, stop, stop, stop. We've got to talk about the theology of that. <laughs> well, this is, this is a little different because it's a written down sermon. I wouldn't have done this in person. Well, maybe. Okay. Your servant, 
said by the Holy Spirit. Oh, here we go. Psalm 2, critical when it comes to perspective. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. Why quote Psalm 2? When you read Psalm 2, it just seems like all sorts of wrong. It's so wrong for human leaders to oppose God. It it seems wrong because it is wrong. But in their praying, these potentially frightened believers are praying Psalm 2 kind of theology. Because in Psalm 2 we learn, yes, God, the one true God, is opposed by those who shouldn't oppose Him. And yet, the story doesn't end that way because God sovereignly works even through their opposition to bring about salvation for His people through His Son. And... and. As an aside, I don't think, I think oftentimes when people quote texts in the Bible, they, they, they have more than just the portion they're quoting in mind. But every single time you don't have to quote the whole thing. I do think they have the whole Psalm 2 in mind where we go on to read things like the one who sits in the heavens laughs. His will cannot be thwarted. He's sovereign and he will accomplish his purposes. Even if they crucify his son, his purposes will be accomplished for the good of his people. So they're praying that way. They've got this right theology. They're thinking of the sovereignty of God and they're thinking of the sovereignty of God even when people oppose him like in Psalm chapter 2. More about that in just a moment. Maybe one more thing before we move on though. It is noteworthy because it is... It's very telling where he says in verse 25, why did the Gentiles or the nations, um, Psalm 2, rage? That, that's, that's telling because at this point in time, who's Peter talking to? The nations, the Gentiles? Mm-mm. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to Israel. I mean, this is, this is, this is very telling. He's using nations, Gentile, godless talk. And he's using that label and applying it to the Jewish religious leaders. Very offensive, very telling. It reminds me of other places in the Old Testament where speaking in the positively, sometimes the Bible talks about those who are not his people become his people. Well, here his people are not his people because they're rejecting the cornerstone. And now Jews, unheard of, are referred to as non-Jews because they're not believing. They're called, they're labeled Gentiles. It's a massive statement. I think they're going to Psalm 2 because it helps them theologically to keep their minds on straight. They're not wrong. They're not on the wrong path. Yes, Jesus was crucified, but he was raised. Yes, they're being opposed and their God is being opposed, but that doesn't mean somehow They're on the wrong path because all along scripture anticipated the opposition of the son and all along opposition will not prevail. Let's keep going. Verse 27, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. There's our servant theme. Whom you, the sovereign God, anointed, that would be Christ, Christ talk, Messiah talk, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do, to do whatever your hand and your plan had. Here's the P word I was waiting for. Predestined to take place. In their prayer, they talk about predestination. Not because it's controversial, but because they believe it's true. Because if God is sovereign and has a decree and has a purpose, and we can read Psalm 2 and we can see it from beginning to end by way of shorthand, you know what gives you boldness? 
You know, it gives you confidence. You know, it causes you to not want to compromise. Well, God is sovereign. And not only that, this God, even the way uh, things unfolded with Jesus at the hands of sinful human beings, yes, God who is sovereign, orchestrating overall, even using sinful human beings to accomplish his greater purposes, predestined it to happen. And what have we done? Don't say that word. I know, I know pastors who've been fired for just saying it. We've lost our minds. This is one of the key things. Yes, the praying helps keep them bold. For sure we see it. Commitment to sovereignty. Yes, for sure we see it. Commitment to the psalm, psalm two, helps them to keep their perspective and to be bold. And their Heart level, gut level commitment to the reality of predestination keeps them to be committed. Yep. It can help us. It's meant to help us. It's showing up in their praying. I think we have time if I go really fast and I've been known to be able to go really fast on on occasion. Let's quick go to Psalm 2, if you would. We went there first hour. I don't want you to feel like you want your money back. Um, Psalm, two, Psalm 2 just needs to be one of your favorites. I think it was one of the early church's favorites. Because it really helps keep perspective on when things seem to be going terribly and the culture's against God and the culture's against Christ and the culture's against the gospel and the culture seems to be so jacked up and wrong. You get the idea. And it might seem like there's no hope. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. You got to go to Psalm 2. You got to love Psalm 2. It comes in, I think, four stanzas. And, and it's sort of like a hymn would. And it's just glorious and wonderful. And it helps us to reacclimate our minds to reality so that we can stay bold, so that we cannot be compromisers, so that we don't capitulate or cave in. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We, we want our freedom. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We don't want to, we don't want anybody to tell us what's right, what's wrong, what's true about God, what's not true about God, to tell us things like conscious faith in Christ is required for salvation and on and on the list could go. We, we, we just want our independence, is the idea. Next stanza, he who sits in the heavens, laughs. Notice the camera angles are different. Here's the earth camera angle that I'm consumed with. But it's good to remember, you know what, there, there's another camera angle. How does God feel about it? He sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, the sovereign one, the one who ultimately matters, I have set my king. He's saying this to the kings, even. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice the contrast. This is the Jesus one in anticipation. I will tell of the decree, right? The irreversible, unstoppable, sovereign God decrees things. That's predestination kind of talk. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Sound familiar? Should sound familiar because it comes up all over the place, like in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans and in Hebrews. And it's always contrary to what I thought for a long time, uh, but I'm in really good company. It's always talking about the resurrection. It's not talking about the incarnation or the birth. Today I have begotten you. When you look at the context, it's resurrection talk. Because when God raises his son from the dead, he officially declares... Finally, climactically, vindicatedly to make up a word. He's my son. I'm installing him. Even think ascension on the throne. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
He, he, he is the king. He is the judge as well. Verse 10 then says, if we move to the next one, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Going back to verses 1 to 3, you're on notice. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Here's, here's how you should respond. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Think ancient world king. You kiss his ring. You kiss his hand. You bow down low and you come to him as a sovereign. In, in our terms, from what Peter's been saying, it's another way of saying, see Jesus for who he really is and trust in him. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take notice refuge in him. Our psalm that we read earlier was similar to that. The very one where you can escape condemnation and judgment from is the very one you go to. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords who's also a savior. Kiss the sun. Psalm 2 is so helpful. Things aren't always going to be the way they are right now. Justice will come one day. The way to avoid the justice is to kiss the sun, to embrace the sun, to seek refuge in the sun. No doubt the early apostles have this in mind. No doubt they understand these things. It's why they reference Psalm 2. Now the prayer moves from praise to another focus. Let's keep going ever so quickly. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Now the Lord of Psalm 2, notice they're threatening us, your people. And then, you got to love it, and grant to your servants. Yeah, but the, the faulty, fake religious leaders claim to be God's servants. No, now the apostles say, we're your servants. How can they know they're his servants? They can know they're his servants because they're, they're the ones who come in agreement with David, who believed in a greater servant who is none other than Christ the Lord. And now they've been preaching the truth about Jesus unadulteratedly, uncompromisingly. And that's one way to know that you're connected to the servant if all you're saying is what he said. Really cool to see this here. Really cool. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. See, it's it's even right there. How can they claim to be his servants? Because they're speaking his word. The truth about Jesus. They're doing so with boldness, fueled by convictions, no doubt, regarding things even like predestination. Sovereignty. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. Ah, yeah. We can call ourselves servants because of the holy servant. And we're just preaching the truth about him. We're just echoing him. Verse 31 then says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And, I love this, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I say, Amen. So good. How could they be brave when they had been cowards? Well, because they prayed, because the Spirit controlled them absolutely, 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 and because they didn't have crazy, wonky, made-up theology that denies predestination and sovereignty and other basic Bible things, and because they remembered Psalm 2 and the perspective that it affords us with, They remembered Jesus as the one and only hope for resurrection. They'd seen and heard him. Bold, 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 bold. Don't have to compromise, don't have to compromise, don't have to compromise. Let's end on this. Let's think about sovereignty. And let's think about sovereignty just in three basic ways at least. First, let's think about sovereignty when it comes to whether or not it's a good idea to say things like, there are ways other than Jesus and conscious faith in him by which you can gain everlasting life. As soon as you say that, you just told us you're sovereign. And I don't buy it that you're sovereign. And you shouldn't buy it that I'm sovereign. What keeps it in check is for us to not have a God complex. As soon as I, as soon as I say anything like, 
there are other ways, you'll know that I don't sound like Jesus and I don't sound like the apostles and I don't sound like other Christians. And you can say, congratulations, Pat, you get an A on creativity and you get an F when it comes to religion. And you might say you're a Christian pastor, but we don't believe it. Let's be frank. Let's be honest. Let's think about sovereignty. God is sovereign over heaven and earth. Let's say what he says, or let's not say we're Christians. Let's think about sovereignty in another realm. Let's think then about sovereignty when it comes to whether or not we... can be bold or not as a church, as individuals to do the right thing even if we're facing sovereigns and their consequences. Yeah, we can be bold by remembering what's true, by praying, by learning and observing from other believers. The key to boldness, I think, Holy Spirit, yes, but not divorced from good and right theology regarding the sovereignty of God. He is the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's stick to that script. And then maybe finally, in a more generic sense, obviously these believers are bold amidst intimidation and it has to do with preaching or compromising the gospel. But in principle, it's true beyond this. I know it is because like Romans at chapter 8, for example, but I want to go there with you just for a moment at least. We live in a broken world. Gravity's against us. And I mean we're going to have funerals. We're going to experience sickness and suffering and turmoil and crisis. Not only because of the gospel, but just because we're here. Please don't cut yourself off from one of the vital ways you can face tomorrow. And that is knowing that God is sovereign. And if you're in Christ, He's for you. This is why Romans 8 does say what it says. We flippantly use it perhaps too often, but it is true nonetheless. That God does cause all things to work together for good, for those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. And then the next verses go on to talk about things like predestination. Life is hard enough if you have good theology. (laughs) Don't cut yourself off from it because it's meant by God to help you face tomorrow. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the men and women and boys and girls who are gathered here and beyond in the world at large as believers, worshiping, wanting to honor you, but also with our hands out spiritually, asking God, help us, help us, because we do need to face tomorrow, not to mention today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.